I'm Paul Wontorek, and this is The Broadway Fix for Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. Later in the show, Caitlin Moynihan is sitting down with Anais Mitchell, the Grammy and Tony-winning songwriter of Hadestown, to talk about her fascinating new book. But first, I'm bringing in Beth Stevens to do some news. Hi, Beth. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. I don't know about you, but I feel the cold chill of fall coming on, so I guess Tony season? Well, it might feel like pumpkin season or leaf peeping season or even election season, but you're right. It's actually award season. The Tony Award nominations will be announced tomorrow, Thursday, October 15th. Isn't that crazy? Aladdin Tony winner James Monroe Iglehart will reveal the nominations for the 74th Annual Tony Awards, and that will happen live on the Tony Awards YouTube channel at noon Eastern time. Originally scheduled to be held on June 7th at Radio City Music Hall and broadcast by CBS, there are no details yet about a date and venue for the Tony Awards ceremony. But good luck to all the Broadway hopefuls tomorrow. Who's ready for some epic musical theater? Producer Cameron McIntosh announced he's bringing back to the West End Les Miserables, the staged concert in December. The stars from last year's live cinema event are also returning. Michael Ball as Javert, Alfie Beau as Jean Valjean, Carrie Hope Fletcher as Fantine, and as Thenardier, Matt Lucas of one of my quarantine guilty pleasures, The Great British Bake Off. Beth, do you watch that? Not yet, but now I have to please get on it. Performances will run December 5th to January 17th at the Sondheim Theater with a reduced seating capacity of 750 and COVID-19 safety measures in place. Due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, some Broadway shows have shifted their dates forward. The world premiere of the Michael Jackson musical MJ has been postponed to September 2021 at the Neil Simon Theater. Directed and choreographed by Tony winner Christopher Wheeldon and featuring a book by two-time Pulitzer winner Lynn Nottage, the musical stars Ephraim Sykes as the moonwalking entertainer. Meanwhile, the Lincoln Center Theater production of the new musical Flying Over Sunset, starring Carmen Cusack, Tony Yazbek, and Harry Haddon Payton, is rescheduling performances from the spring to the fall with exact dates to be announced. And we have some holiday cheer to announce if you're patient. Jack Thorne's adaptation of A Christmas Carol will be back on the Broadway boards in time for the 2021 holiday season. Cool. Broadway barks and now West End woofs. That's right, the well-loved pet Adopt-a-thon is hopping across the pond with musical theater icon Elaine Page as hostess. Co-founder Bernadette Peters will also be present for the online event, which will feature many adorable adoptable dogs and cats from various UK shelters and a bunch of West End stars that are not adoptable, unfortunately. The whole thing will go down on Broadway.com's YouTube channel on Monday, November 9th. Hey, Beth, did you know before they were the toast of Hollywood, the March sisters were the talk of the town on Broadway. It's time to get homeschooled on Little Women. It's time to talk about Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. That's right, everyone's favorite Little Women. Of course, Louisa May Alcott's sister heroines first entered the public eye when she put them in her autobiographical novel, which was first published in 1868. And the sisters recently took Hollywood by storm, again, thanks to Greta Gerwig's film adaptation. 
But today we're talking about Little Women on Broadway. Now, I know your mind is filled with images of Sutton Foster now, but we're actually going back 108 years to October 14, 1912, when Marion DeForest's play adaptation first opened at the Playhouse Theater. Mostly a critic, best known for her column called As I Go to the Play in the Buffalo Express, DeForest first took to the task of dramatizing Little Women at the urging of her actress friend Minnie Mattern Fisk, a great lady of the stage. The book was so known and well-loved that DeForest was able to sit down and write an entire first draft of her four-act adaptation without referencing the novel. It was faithful, and it was a big hit with audiences when it opened in 1912. In fact, it came back just four years later in 1916 for a holiday run. In total, DeForest's adaptation of Little Women played Broadway five times through the 1940s, and the great Catherine Cornell played Joe in London in 1919. But let's talk about the musical. Fresh off her Tony-winning run in Thoroughly Modern Millie, in late 2004, Sutton Foster joined the ranks of great stars to play Joe. This time in a musical by Jason Howland and Mindy Dickstein. Although it only ran a little over five months, I'd be delighted to tell you it was fantastic and earned Sutton Foster a quick return trip to the Tony Awards as a nominee. Some things are meant to be. I'm Beth Stevens, and here are your top three to see. Tonight at 8 p.m., Tony nominee Melissa Errico's three-part live-streamed concert series begins. It's called Il Parle, El Chant, and features Francophile songs about love, desire, and mystery, as well as conversations with The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik. Get your tickets at the French Institute's website. That's F-I-A-F. Tomorrow, Broadway stars Kelly O'Hara and Norm Lewis perform at the Keep Music Alive virtual gala at 7 p.m. This event aims to raise funds for New York City students who rely on education through music for access to music education. Donate and watch the concert at the ETM YouTube channel. Tomorrow also marks the premiere of Social Distance. This eight-episode anthology series is chock-full of Broadway stars, including Danielle Brooks, Daphne Rubin-Vega, acting couple Dylan and Becky Ann Baker, and more. Set during the first few months of the COVID-19 crisis, each episode was produced entirely remotely. Watch it on Netflix. I'm coming away for me. I hear the walls repeating. The falling of my feet and it sounds like drumming. In 2006, Anais Mitchell premiered the new musical she was working on as a DIY theater project in Vermont. 14 years, five productions, and two albums later, Town is a certified Tony and Grammy-winning hit. Now, Anais is releasing her first book, Working on a Song, The Lyrics to Town. I got to talk to Anais all about how writing the book was like therapy and the show's long journey of bringing Orpheus and Eurydice's story to life on stage. Oh my gosh, Anais Mitchell. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm so excited to talk to you all about this beautiful, beautiful thing, working on a song, the lyrics of Hades Town that just came out. So we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to great to be here. So I just need to know what is the backstory of this book? How did it 
come into being? Like how long ago did you realize, oh, I want to make a book about this? It didn't really cross my mind until after the show was up um, on Broadway. And then um, this publisher, Plume Books, which is part of Penguin uh, Random House, reached out to ask if I wanted to publish the lyrics like as they appeared on Broadway. Um, And I was very honored by that and excited about the idea of like, this, the lyrics getting to live kind of on the page as poetry. Um, but then when I started thinking about it, I was like, what I really want to do is publish those Broadway lyrics alongside of like all these older versions and drafts of those same songs. Um, and so then I started to compile that old stuff. And then I realized they had to um, contextualize somehow, you know, what, what was going on, how the changes had happened. And then suddenly I was writing this book um, uh, which is the working on a songbook. How long was the process of like realizing, okay, I'm going to write a book to then it's published being last week? Yeah. Um, it took, I want to say it took like a year, you know, it was like, yeah. yeah, I didn't expect that. It was sort of just one foot in front of the next. And it was um, partly like the research and the compiling of all of the stuff. And then um I wrote, you know, everything. I put in the book, the the original draft of it, like everything I could think of, and then realized, like, okay, that I, that was great for like therapy for me, <laughs> but I don't know that everyone needs to be subjected to like every single, you know, lyric that got tossed, and um, and so I tried to streamline it, and and my hope is that that the book is something. That- that could be of use to people, you know, hopefully like fans of the show, but also maybe like creative writers and um, dramatic, you know, uh, songwriters. Because um, there was such a learning curve for me over the course of making Hades Town. And, and I was hoping to kind of, uh, it's, not, it's not like a how-to book, but hopefully that I could share my process and that that would be useful to somebody else. What has it been like for you as someone who obviously has been with the Hades Town journey forever? What has it been like for you during that year to revisit those pieces and revisit those things? Um, did it take you back to very specific like times, like sitting in the rehearsal room or watching it on stage? But what was that like for you to revisit all of these things? It was, you know, I would say like I, I pulled a few things out of that time. And, and one of the things like I talk about in the book, which is that, um, you know, I think of myself as a very slow writer. And, and a lot of times if I'm sitting at the at the desk and I'm kind of like I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall like you know I'm looking for the right the right line the right the right chorus the right thing and it's as if it's like everything is wrong until suddenly like I've discovered the right thing and uh the process of looking at these lyrics really brought home to me that is deeper than that like because a lot of lines that I that I tried and that didn't work ended up kind of they I think of them as like they went back into the ground and they kind of nourished the soil of the thing that came up that was right so a lot of times things things were recycled or they you know they sort of changed shape but they um they they weren't for nothing you know what I mean and so that feeling was very inspiring to me that I thought of it like um, like gardening that you know you some of the flowers die and the, but they go back into the soil and they and they're part of the piece. So like what if you go to Broadway when we're open again <laughs> and you see what's on the stage there like you're seeing and hearing the blooming flower but there's all of these um, other ideas not just mine but you know of anyone that ever worked on the show that exist in the like DNA of the show mm-hmm. and they're and they're like 
underneath the the plant supporting it from below so that was like inspiring for me to feel like a little more at peace with the with my messy process of writing and how long it takes and how frustrating mm -hmm. it can be um and the other thing is that i think there's a way in which like there were all these tiny moments of fruition for this show you know it started out in um state of vermont which is where i am now um and it was like this diy community theater project um uh, there's an early director, Ben Matchstick, and Michael Chorney, my, um, one of my uh, two collaborators, who's a, a ranger orchestrator. Um, mm -hmm. And we put on the show with friends of ours, and uh, it was like a much more abstract version of the show. There was less mm -hmm. material, but it was magical, and it was finished in its way, you know? Yeah. And then like, we made the album, and like... Todd Sikafus came on board, our other orchestrator, and the um, the guest singers, and like we focused all our energy on this this audio document, and that was kind of done in its own mm -hmm. way. And each of the productions that we did after that, when I was working with Rachel Chavkin, mm -hmm. um, uh, they became, you know, they were what they were at the time that they were happening, and it's not as if they were unfinished. Yeah. And it's like they were they left more they left more to the audience's imagination there was more gaps to fill in and i think what we brought to broadway was like let's make the fullest version of this thing we possibly can you know and still leave a little space for people to fill in the blanks themselves so i love especially i loved being able to read what it was like for you to finally like see your words and find like they got new life when they were sung by like Andrea Shields and Patrick Page and finding Reeve and Eva. I loved hearing that and seeing that how their voices kind of changed the meaning a little bit. Can you talk about what it was like for you to kind of, as you said, see this full piece come together on Broadway and kind of see your words take new life with this full fledged Tony winning Broadway production? Yeah, yeah. The actors were, there are a lot of actors in the pages of the book, you know, because they, um, they, they're the sort of vehicle by which the words come to life. And, and there's so much learning that happened from them, not just like in the room, because, you know, these actors are all like brilliant people. And I, I, I did this book launch last night with um, Patrick Page, speaking to Patrick Page, and I was remembering so many moments in the rehearsal room where Patrick Page would drop some kind of wisdom about, you know, the myth or um, the sort of Joseph Campbell style mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and and characters also like um, those actors are living inside of those characters and they, if something rings untrue to them, they're gonna rub up against that. How could they not, you know? And so that kind of feedback was so, um, so important to me. And there's a couple moments I share. Should I share some of them? Uh, go now? for it. Yes, go for it. So, all right. Well, there's a couple. There's a couple that jump to mind. Like one, um, for a long time, there was not really a song in the first act where Orpheus could really express his um, mm -hmm. his love for Eurydice. Mm -hmm. um, there was wedding song, but that was kind of more of this like back and forth banter and. Reeve was, I remember we were in London and he was like, I really wish there was a moment where I could, you know, express my love for her. <laughs> and uh, and so I realized like I had to put that into that song that's called All I've Ever Known. Um, and there was a moment where also, you know, there's a moment where Eurydice says, um, uh, 
basically like Orpheus is working on this song that may or may not save the world, but he's, while he's absorbed in that project, he's, he is um, neglecting his love of his life and she needs things. She needs, she's, she's going to get some firewood. She's going to go, you know, get, try to find some food for them when there's a storm coming and he's not aware that that's happening. Mm. And um, I, I remember there was a line I had written for Orpheus where he kind of like, he dismisses Eurydice. She's like, she's like, we need food, we need firewood, and he's like, I'm working on myself. <laughs> you know, yeah. Reeve was like, I can't, I can't say that. How could I say that to her? And we we realized like we both had had this experience as songwriters where, like, you're right, you're working on a song, and your like lover or partner is like, um, hey, I need you to do this thing, whatever, wash the dishes or whatever it is, and you're like express that you're annoyed because you're working on a song, and they're like, well, fine, I'll do it myself, and then you're like, okay, and that, and then they, and they go off to do the thing, and you're like, great, now I'm alone to write the song, but I can't write the song now. I feel terrible, <laughs> you know. So the idea that Orpheus could dismiss her, neglect her, be uh, be callous toward the love of his life, and then in the next moment be like, I'm working on my song. Both Reeve and I were like, yeah, it just doesn't work like that. Um, so there was that there was a sort of problem to be figured out about how to allow Orpheus to um, sort of make that mistake mm -hmm. in terms of neglecting her. Um, I hope that people who are watching this have seen the show because otherwise I don't know. I just went down a whole rabbit hole that they might not. Understand. But um, anyway, that was an instance of an actor dropping some wisdom back to me yeah. by their like lived experience of the role. Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite things about reading this book, as like a Hades Town mega fan myself, a Hades Town stan, if you will was seeing how collaborative, like truly collaborative this whole effort was for you as you know the creator songwriter of this musical. Like you talk so much about working with Rachel Chavkin and your other creative partners and uh, obviously the actors and seeing it all come to life. What was that like for you? If I take you back to like opening night on Broadway, what do you remember about I feel like that's kind of like, you know, that was like, it's like the big hype moment of like, okay, it's, you know, since 2006, Vermont, and now it's 2019, and you're opening at the Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway. What was that like for you as the creator of this? You know, did you ever, did you watch Breaking Bad? <laughs> yeah. You know how that moment where he says he's in like a fugue state? He goes into like a fugue state. I feel like opening night on Broadway was, I was in like a fugue state. Like if I'm really being honest, I remember that like at the end of the show, you know, on opening night, you get to go up, like the mm -hmm. author, and the director, I think the choreographer, like we went, we went on stage for the, for the curtain call and um, someone handed me this big bouquet of flowers and I didn't, I didn't, I felt, I didn't know what to do with it. So I just put it down on the ground. Like I felt, you know, I was in a weird, I just was, and in a way it was so incredible, but it's also like, it's not those moments that, mm. um, it's not those moments that you do it for or that you live yeah. for. So as an artist, it's always more like the, the, the tiny discovery that happens in the room in a workshop and you're like, oh, this is the line. Or like, oh, that's the costume or whatever. But I will say, yes, the piece has been extraordinarily um, collaborative for as long as it's been, you know, 
getting worked on. And mm -hmm. there's a way in which I think that all of us who ever worked on it feel like it's much bigger than us. Like, um, and once the show was up on Broadway and there was suddenly there was like, there was kids coming to the show and they were like dressed up as the characters and they were waiting in line, you know, in the early morning, I would like jog by like 5 a.m. and there's like a line of people waiting to get tickets. And I was like, I have no idea what the experience of these kids is. Like I, you know, they have their own relationship with the show basically, like, and with the story and with the characters, like it's much bigger than mm -hmm. me or any of us who worked on it. And, and that was beautiful and humbling um, to sort of let it, let it go at, at that time. What was the hardest thing to let go of? Was there a lyric or a specific song that you like knew needed to like be cut, but you were trying so hard to make it work? Is there like one in particular, like, ah, oh. I love it, but I have to let you go. Mm -hmm. Totally. There was so many of those. And um, <laughs> so this one is, I, I don't even know what to say about it. You know, it, it's not something that got cut that I missed, but the epics that Orpheus sings, he sings mm -hmm. these three, um, these three songs called the epics. And they're basically like this ranging narrative folk song that he sings about Hades and Persephone, the gods, and like what has gone wrong with their love and also what has gone wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. And um, these songs were like the bane of my existence <laughs> like, ever since I started writing them, partially because I felt like so much pressure that, this is Orpheus, the best poet in the world, you know, the greatest poet of, uh, of all time. And that they had to be like, no <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like they wanted to be like, really, you know, the metaphors were like complex and the rhymes was all, you know, internal <laughs> and um, stuff like and the imagery had to be just right. And I rewrote those songs so many times. And um, I talk in the book about epic three, which is like the ultimate, you know, it's really, it's Haiti. It's um, the encounter with Hades where Orpheus is singing his song finally to the king in the underworld and telling him his own story. And it's the song that is supposed to soften the heart of Hades, you know, just enough that he lets Orpheus attempt to walk out of the underworld. And I go kind of into detail about the, how I was trying to rewrite it, like right up until the moment we opened on Broadway. And I, um, I like, I basically was like panicking. Like I, I, I was, I was staying in Manhattan. I live, I was living in Brooklyn and I was staying in Manhattan with Mara, one of the producers um, at her friend's apartment. Cause I didn't want to have to commute back and forth. Cause I was just rewriting, rewriting. And I was hunting for this one like version of a court of a, a verse. And um, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't ever feel resolved about like, had he done the thing, you know, had he, mm. had he delivered exactly the, um, the right message in that song. Mm. And so there's a lot of detail in the book about that. And, I, and ultimately, you know, what's funny is that like, in a way it was so hard for me to let go of that project because like it was hard for me to let go of the Hades sound, which I've been working on for so, so long. It was like my whole like creative identity had become working on this show. And then, so, um, there was a weird like meta situation with Orpheus mm -hmm. where, you know, I kind of realized like, we don't love Orpheus because he's perfect, <laughs> you yeah. know, we yeah. love him because he tries and like, mm -hmm. because of the purity of his intentions. And so at some level, when I had to let go of it, it was like, okay, you know, I, I did my best <laughs> and I have to let it go. Um, yeah. yeah. 
I have one last question. Yeah. What would 2006 Aeneas say if you time traveled back and told her everything that was going to happen with Hades Town? Do you think she'd believe you? I got, okay, here's what I'll say. I don't think I ever believed that a show that, um, a piece of, of, of theater, music theater that came from so far outside the box, mm-hmm. um, would be able to survive in the, in a commercial world like wow. Broadway, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, I was gonna say, I, when I was that age, I was like, anything could happen, who knows, you know? And I, had I known it was gonna be 12 years or whatever, who, I may have abandoned, <laughs> may have abandoned the but, um, but I would say it's a testament to Broadway, I think that it is uh, apparently, you know, flexible enough that it can embrace um, a style of music and theater that feels like to me anyway, and I'm not an expert at all, but like um, pretty unconventional um, for that, uh, that form. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot about it that was like, yeah, it's not a book musical. It's, it's all sung through. Mm -hmm. There's like a narrator just going to tell you everything. Um, Rachel Chavkin is a genius, you know, it's like, everything she does I, I'll go see anything she does like she mm-hmm. um, has a way of of holding together sort of the really scrappy like gritty kind of downtown stuff but also just this like mind-blowing production value that it feels mm-hmm. like well it totally belongs on Broadway and I remember mm-hmm. when I first saw the great comet of 1812 it was at Ars Nova um, in this tiny little theater and I was like this should go to Broadway. <laughs> you know, this is like so delightful. And then it did. And I was like, wow, you know, it's, it's, uh, so she was like the ideal companion for the journey um, to Broadway. I am so thrilled that so many people get to hear all about your process and working on a song, the lyrics of Hades Town, written by Tony winner, Grammy winner, Aeneas Mitchell. She is an icon. You guys have to hear it from. Miss Aeneas herself, thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me all about this book. Thank People can you. buy this wherever books are sold, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's in the indie stores. Get it mm-hmm. online. <laughs> yeah, buy from your local bookstore. If it's there, go support your local bookstore. But definitely go pick this up. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Hang in there. <laughs> you too. Hope you got your Broadway fix. We're back with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. See you next time.